This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Uh, two segments this week, three guests. I think you're going to enjoy these conversations. First up, John Olrand. He is a regular on this podcast, the media reporter for Sports Business Daily. We get into a lot of stuff, a long discussion about NFL ratings, NFL viewership, what we thought week one meant, what we thought, uh, what we think might happen heading forward, and some of the potential problem areas for the NFL when it comes to specific cities. We also talk about the Big Ten returning and uh, what that meant for Fox and ESPN and Fox and ESPN consulting with Big Ten officials. Talked about uh, the uh, all these places that are sort of uh, heading into gambling and sports gambling and maybe might not be as big a gold rush as you may think. Oran has some thoughts on that. Peacock streaming service. And then we get into some nonsense about PR departments uh, for uh, ESPN and otherwise. They are followed by Sayward Darby and Corey Sobel. Sayward Darby is the author of Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism. That book has been exceptionally reviewed in a lot of places and an incredibly important subject right now. Corey Sobel is the author of The Red Shirt, uh, which is a fictional novel about college football, and that has been selected for the 2020 long list of the Center for Fiction's first novel prize. And uh, we get in there, a married couple get into uh, uh, trying to sell a book in of essentially in unprecedented times. And then Sayward gets into uh, why she wrote about white supremacy uh, with a specific focus on women, subject that is really not talked about at all, which I found really fascinating. And Corey gets into his decision to write a fictional novel about um, – First-year college football players. He played at Duke uh, 12, 13 years ago, so he um, he has experience, obviously, in in that world. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. Two really interesting conversations, very very different. John O'Rand and then uh, Sayward Darby and Corey Sobel coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, John O'Rand is um, one of the frequent guests of this uh, podcast. As I said at the top. He's uh, kind enough not to do any other podcast this week, which is very rare for Mr. Oran. But he's, today, uh, just today, exclu- Richard. Just today, right. He's exclusive to the Sports Media Podcast. And John Oran of the uh, Sports Business Daily and Journal, their media reporter, joins us. John, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm doing well. All right. So thank you for coming on, as always. And let's get to, um, let's get to NFL viewership to start, which... Uh, you know, is always of perhaps of more interest in the history of uh, humankind, John, in 2020 than ever before. Because uh, you know, when when the president of the United States and others are interested in uh, NFL viewership, it uh, it sort of changes the calculation on this stuff. So here's where I want to start, um, and that is Week One, the seven game windows for the NFL to start the season. This is courtesy of Austin Carp, your colleague, um, averaged 15.8 million viewers. 
That's down 9% from 17.3 million last year for week one, where the real hit took place, <clears throat> excuse me, where the primetime windows in week one uh, regarding year over year. The positive for the NFL, of course, uh, incredible number for the Buck Saints, 25.8 million, most watched week one game in four years for Fox. Fox Regional did well. And then, you know, if you really get into the 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 sort of the nitty gritty, like the Mike Mulvihill uh, types did, they get into, you know, more sports watching for last weekend than we've seen in uh, in some time. Uh, media, uh, what am I saying? Not media, but commer- the, the amount of money for 30 second commercials, particularly on Sunday night football, massive up from last year. So even with the primetime declines, the networks are, uh, making oodles of money. So I want to just sort of ask you your quick, well, before we get into sort of how people sort of present their own narratives for this overview to start, how did you see week one NFL viewership? Um, and there are so many narratives to, to, to go with this. Uh, I think week one NFL viewership uh, was was good. Um, I, I think that the NFL and the networks have to be uh, uh, pleased with it. I think that you know if if you do um, take a look at the numbers, uh, you know Sunday night football was down, uh, but it won the night by, by a ton. Uh, and, and it's, it's on pace to, to set another record as the most watched primetime series. Uh, Monday night football was down for both of theirs. Uh, but again, for, for a cable uh, program, it, it was far and away uh, up top. Um, I think that there are, there, there are, we're getting ready to talk about this, but there are so many different narratives to why ratings might be up or down. Um, I, I will suggest to you, though, that it, like, th- this is the one year it's making a comp is almost, at least right now, is almost impossible. I mean, it, it, what we're talking right now on a Friday afternoon. Um, yesterday, on Thursday, you know, I was watching the uh, U.S. Open. I went from the U.S. Open to the NBA playoffs. I went from the NBA playoffs to Thursday night football. I missed the NHL uh, playoffs to decide who was going to be in the Stanley Cup final. There was baseball on. We've never had a a moment like this where there have just been so many different sports choices. And, of course, with so many different sports choices, you're going to spread out the viewership across them. So everybody's going to see a a little bit of a a dip in, in viewership. But I think that the the NFL, if you take a look at the at what that viewership was, they showed that of among all the sports, frankly, among all television programming, they're still the king by far, and and nobody's even a close second. All right, so let's get into um, some of the more details on this. Um, let's let's take the sort of the negatives first. Um, Seven game windows down over last year. As you said, I agree with you. It's very hard to make honest comps because we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's far more increased um, sports consumption. But, and if you're going to be honest, here's some issues I think the NFL really uh, needs to examine. And this is something that you uh, looked at in your newsletter and on Sports Business Daily. There are the New York teams at the moment, John, really had low ratings in the opening week in terms of local markets. The Jets um, were down significantly against the Bills, I think 30% uh, 
um, you wrote, and obviously the, the the Giants were down on the on the primetime window. Um, I would think that the league has to be concerned if both teams in the top television market look like it's gonna it's gonna be an ugly season for them. Your thoughts? Uh, well, so you just talked about New York, uh, L.A. Similarly, has a, a couple of teams that just aren't registering in, in terms of uh, in terms of ratings. I mean, you had the Dallas Cowboys, who are the, it's the most reliable ratings getter of of all NFL teams, and they, they they were playing the Rams, and they couldn't you know they they, they were down, uh, which I found to be somewhat surprising. The Chargers, we all know uh, what 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 those those ratings are like. So there, when you you, you have. In the top two markets, you have local teams that this year um, uh, aren't, aren't aren't drawing the, the audiences, and that's got to be a concern for the NFL. I mean, it's, it's something that uh, when they do well, then then you see ratings go up. When they don't do well, then then it's a struggle. And here's the issue, John. I, like, I don't think that that there's nothing the league can do. Like, there's no catalyst to change that. I like, I don't think the Jets are going to be a very good team, and. You know, maybe the Giants at their best are eight and eight or seven and nine, right? I mean, isn't that I th- to me that's not a fixable problem. What's really concerning would be, I think, the LA teams, which at least in the Rams, like that's a good team, but yet for whatever reason, at least at this point, that market just hasn't popped for the viewership. A fixable problem, I guess. You could like freeze an envelope or something like the NBA did way back when, right? You could, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, no. I, I, I mean, the, the the thing about the Rams and uh, and the the other market that that I found to be really surprising, the the very first game in Las Vegas for the NFL. Yeah, we're. I was going to get to that next. Is, yep. is uh, and and the Las Vegas isn't a very big market, but you know they sort of took an established team out of out of the Oakland San Francisco market and put it down in, in, uh, in, in uh, Las Vegas. And they, it didn't come through with, with the local ratings. And you need those local teams to, to get huge ratings, just like you do in New Orleans or, or you know, in Boston for the Patriots and, and all, all those other places. And, um, and, and I have a feeling that it might take a couple of years. Just the Rams and Chargers still, still feel new to LA to me, don't they? Uh, and certainly the, uh, the, the Raiders in Vegas, so it it might just take a couple of years for for them to set their roots and and really develop a, a fan base. I think. Well, the NFL's got to own that. They got them out of St. Louis, which was a very devout and loyal market, and um, now they're in L.A. And you know that's the thing about Los Angeles. Uh, if you talk to television people, as I know you have, is you're not just competing with other TV shows, John. You're competing against outdoor activities. You know, it's a beautiful place to live. Um, the weather's great, and there are just a lot of people on a Sunday who, if it's a beautiful day, will go to the beach as opposed to watch TV or go climbing or hiking. And that's that's one difference in that market for the NFL, where if it's November or December on the East Coast or in the middle of the country, you know, you're most likely inside. And if you're inside on a Sunday, you're watching, you're watching the NFL. You're also dealing with a fan base that uh, the NFL fan base in L.A., that had been conditioned to watching every big game because there was, there was no local team there. And so they were watching the, the doubleheader. They didn't have to watch the, the Chargers and, and the you know local 1 p.m. window. They were going to see whatever game was on uh, Fox or CBS, and, and, uh, and, and that would you know, sort of drive viewership. Now, now they don't have that as much. So it's, you know, it's, they're conditioning their fans in L.A. to watch the games differently. So, John, as I look at this week's schedule, 
um, here's sort of my quick uh, synopsis of this. Um, and, you know, by the time people listen to this, they, we may even have the answers. But I think the New England-Seattle game on Sunday Night Football is going to do really, really well. So I think that gets a pop that's going to be, you know, I, I don't have the year-over-year year comp in front of me, but that that's going to beat last week's Sunday Night Football, I think. And so that should be a good viewership story for them. I think the Saints-Vegas on Monday night has great potential for um, – for ESPN, ABC, and keep in mind there's an ABC simulcast and an ESPN2 simulcast. When they roll all those numbers up together, Monday Night Football, I think, is going to have a good viewership story. But the the rest of the schedule, I don't know. It's hard to, you know, you, the, you, you got regional games with the Dallas and Atlanta for Fox that may be sort of the potentially biggest one early. I don't think any of those late games, uh, Baltimore, Houston, Kansas City, Los Angeles, Washington, Arizona are going to come close to the what we saw with the Saints and the Bucks. So again, if I had to guess, and it's just a pure guess making some very quick assumptions as I look at the September 20th, September 21st schedule, I think that we're going to see in a mixed bag once again for the NFL this week. What about you? Uh, I think uh, you can pretty much bet that uh, Monday Night Football is going to see a, a, an increase. Um, uh, they're, they're putting it on ABC and ESPN. They're going to roll those numbers up. Uh, ESPN2 also is going to have uh, uh, something on there. Uh, one, one, like you said, once you get all those numbers, that'll be up. But really, for the first couple of weeks of, of, of the NFL season, I expect numbers to be down. I, I, I expect, uh, in, in my own personal household, I'm going to be watching the U.S. Open on, on Sunday. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's a golf major. It's a, 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 our, our country's major golf championship and, and a bunch of as of right now, anyway, a pretty nice looking uh, leaderboard as well. Um, I think that you know the NBA playoffs. If like Le- LeBron James is playing, I- I'm not sure who who has the Sunday night game, but you know if it's a Celtics Heat or if it's like LeBron James against the the, the Nuggets, I, that, that's going to take take eyeballs. It's going to take viewers away from from the NFL. So I would. I, if I was the NFL, they've never seen this type of competition before uh, out there. They're still the big dog. They're still the, the ones that are going to get by far the biggest ratings. But it's just going to it's going to hit them. I, I, the NFL is going to hurt NBA playoffs and NHL playoffs much more than vice versa. But it still is going to take a little bit out of the NFL. And I would expect to, to, to see viewership drop over the next over the first several weeks of the season. No, listen, you want to speak about viewership drops? Watch the Tampa Bay Lightning, Dallas Stars, NHL, Stanley Cup Final going against major competition, including potentially two Monday Night Football games, uh, NBA Conference Finals, college football on Saturday, game one of the Stanley Cup, uh, first top 20 game in college football, and then baseball as well. Uh, That, not to mention the fact that neither of those two teams are like Chicago, Philly, New York, which really a lot of times can drive NBC Stanley Cup viewership. So, yeah, those are two uh, tough I love markets. Ho- I love hockey. It's a great sport, but that we may actually John, we may we we may get the lowest viewed Stanley Cup uh viewership in 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 20 years coming up. Oh, I I would think so, and I I, I don't think that it, it speaks uh, anything of the NHL. They they're used to playing totally the Stanley agree. Cup 100%. final in, in May. I so so the, the comp is it, it it's not a real comp. There's just so many other things going. They would be disadvantaged having these markets in the Stanley Cup final from a TV standpoint uh, if this was play, played in the normal time back in the, in the spring. You know, especially now with all the competition that you talked about, there's just too many, there's too many sports on 
and and viewers are are, are spread out among, among all of them. Everybody's going to see see uh, viewership drop a little bit. John, in my lifetime, we'll just be the last one in the NFL, and then we'll get to college football. In my lifetime, I've never seen sports viewership uh, numbers, particularly the NFL, so politicized. Um, some of the, I mean, there's a lot of obviously bad faith brokers out there who are doing this, but in terms of the, um, you know, in terms of the, the business, the, the, the stuff that, that your place covers, uh, on a daily basis, the reality is the fast national rating, which is essentially the sort of the first viewership rating that comes out, but is not a complete rating, um, is really going to burn like, uh, the NFL and other sports leagues. Because inevitably, John, that number is going to get bigger. But the entertainment publications like Variety and The Wrap and places like that love to put that put that number out quickly, including a sports number. So we're going to have people, I think, jump on these numbers very quick. But the reality is, you know, like, John, like five days later, a week later, the sports viewership number could be significantly higher. Yeah, and, and I, that, that's been – I wrote about how, uh, you know – Fox and ESPN and NBC are—they're beating their head against the wall because there's a narrative that that gets out there uh, first with uh, what, what, the fast affiliate rating, where it's uh, they they do prime time on the West Coast and prime time on the East Coast. Well, a sport in prime time on the East Coast doesn't fit the prime time on the on the West Coast. So the numbers are always 100% of the time for sports, they they, they don't match up, and and you see the sports numbers uh, increase. It's an incredibly reliable metric for entertainment uh, ratings. For if you're rating entertainment shows, because they're on prime time in, in both, but for sports, it's not. Um, and and that's one of the things that, that they they are consistently they will be this, especially this season because it's been as politicized as you said. They are going to be fighting that battle uh, going forward because a lot of the uh, the entertainment trades a lot a lot of publications. I don't just want to hang that on the entertainment trades. A lot of publications are going to be using the, those numbers because they're the first numbers out. And, and uh, you know, it's, uh, you, you get the clicks and, uh, and, and, and do it. But uh, we, we at, at SBD, we, we, we tend to wait for the, uh, for, for the bigger numbers to come out for the, uh, you know, uh, we, we do the fast nationals, we do the final numbers and the fast nationals are, are, are generally a little bit more reliable. And then the final numbers, of course, are the final numbers. Yeah. My, uh, my Twitter mentions will be a shit show from now until who knows when, but that is the reality of the situation. <laughs> By the way, if anybody's still listening to this after uh, after that in-depth discussion of ratings, I'd be shocked. Oh, you know that, uh, you know, you know Bill Hoffheimer or who, who else is listening? <laughs> Your buddies at Fox, Terry Hines, I'm sure, is sitting with a coffee somewhere in Los Angeles listening to this. <laughs> Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The, so um, you wrote that the Big Ten consulted with network partners such as Fox and ESPN before making its decision to play football this year. That, to me, was really, really interesting because we have obviously seen um, so much written about uh, the Big Ten making its initial decision, um, then obviously changing, which the 
leaders there said is based on medical information. Um, <laughs> the reality is it's all economics based. All these people are bullshitting, but whatever. Um, we've seen, um, you know, we've seen obviously politicians want to take credit for this. Um, but the, 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 the thing that I found really interesting, because not a lot of people have written about it except you, is just like how involved Fox and ESPN clearly were, John, because at the end of the day, Fox, ESPN, CBS, that, that's what drives college football. The, the, the mega money that these places, particularly ESPN, is playing is ultimately what drives all this stuff. And they were the ones that were really gutted by the um, lack of inventory, by the fact that this league – wasn't playing and the leagues now at this point john let's just be honest they're playing for television there's no massive crowds there so they can't make revenue in stadium you know the the the, the, the players are ultimately just commodities for the for, for these folks so this is essentially just being done for television so what can you tell um my listeners about just sort of espn and fox's involvement when it came to the big 10 coming back well i don't want to pretend that, that their executives were sitting at the table sort of advocating, like, hey, let's play and trying to uh, uh, talk to the presidents about how they should vote. But uh, when the Big Ten, one month ago, decided to postpone its football season, it caught uh, not only reporters off guard, it caught the TV uh, executives off guard. They, they, did, they, they were following um, you know, uh, reports on it. They, 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 they didn't have any firsthand knowledge of it, and it caused a... Uh, I wouldn't say it caused some bruised feelings, but it, they it, it, they were surprised by that because, like you said, there are no crowds. This is all a made-for-TV uh, event. So if the Big Ten says, "Okay, we're going to come back and we're going to give ESPN, you know, a big Minnesota-Maryland matchup," you know, they need to make sure that ESPN or Fox can clear that matchup. What if ESPN said, "No, we can't. We have." We have the NBA Finals on ABC. We have, you know, the SEC on ESPN. We have, you know, all of a sudden, like they, they've already created their schedule. So if, if they're if the Big Ten Conference is going to be making such a big decision about about coming back to play and the date for when it wants to come back to play, they have to be talking to the TV networks to make sure that that, that they're they're able to clear these uh, clear these games because not every single game is an Ohio State Michigan game. There's some games that are. Uh, you know, I don't want to say dogs, but they they certainly don't rate as high as uh, as Ohio State Michigan. So yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because obviously Ohio State Michigan is going to be you know mega viewership if if they eventually get there. Um, what what's what I don't know honestly I I I don't have a great feel for this because. Uh, um, college football is one for me that's always been, I feel like I got a pretty good handle on what might rate and what not, but, but college football is always tricky for me outside of the, the, the obvious games like Alabama, LSU that, you know, anybody can tell you is going to get viewership. Like, do you have a feel, John, as to like a, like what a Maryland, um, Michigan state game on ABC or ESPN would do, or, you know, like a Michigan state versus Wisconsin game on Fox. Like, do you, you know, the the thing about the Big Ten, while obviously I'm sure the fans are happy to watch it, they would have the same issues to me, John. They're, they're walking into a pretty competitive um, television landscape where they're competing against some things that they never normally would have competed against. Well, I can guarantee you Maryland-Michigan State would kill the ratings in my household. So, I, I you know, 100% of the TVs in use would be on, on that game. But... Um, Look again. There's so much competition out there, Richard. Like, like 
college football is going to see rate, they're going to see ratings drop. They just have to. There's too much competition out there uh, among sports fans. But one of the things that I, I also found interesting about this is ESPN had uh, the SEC playing, they had the Big 12 playing, they had the ACC playing, they had the, uh, the American. Uh, hats off to uh, uh, Mike Oresco, former CBS executive, who, who kept, uh, kept the American Athletic Conference and actually got them sort of as much in the conversation as the Pac-12 uh, in, in some ways. So the, they, they were doing okay in terms of their college programming. Fox has this broadcast that has this pregame show on broadcast and they, ha- they don't have the PAC 12. They didn't have the big, big 10. They only had the big 12 that they shared with, uh, with the SPN getting the big 10 back is so much more important to Fox who, who re- they really, they're putting so much money to, to uh, compete against college game day. They're, they, they are trying really trying hard to establish this noon window and, and trying to take ownership over that as, as a way as an entry point into the college football season. So for, for Fox, this means a ton. Uh, whether, whether or not the ratings go up or, or, or down, it, it, it doesn't matter. They just, it just means that they have something more to choose from than just a, a Big 12 game. John, if you, were, um, if you were Fox and ESPN uh, in particular, how, how would you navigate the real story about um, the Big Ten playing, whether they should be playing, whatever uh, COVID uh, results come from these schools versus uh, just the game coverage because w- what's been very very clear I think is um, you know we've seen this with the NFL I'm, I'm not litigating it on this one as to whether you know fans are are walking away from the NFL or not because you know it, <laughs> it's it's a very weird argument to make that like fans decided to watch the Bucks and the Saints. And then all of a sudden took off like the next day and decided to protest uh, uh, football. But when it comes to the Big Ten in particular, John, I think it's, uh, you know, I wonder if Big Ten fans who have been sort of so many of them have sort of been dying to um, to have their football teams back. Do they want to hear about the, you know, the potential ills that come at the same time, especially when it comes to ESPN, if, if you if you are saying that you're an editorial outfit. And if you say that you are there to document what is real, um, you sort of have a, I think a responsibility to talk about that stuff. How do you think these places are going to, going to navigate this? Uh, on Sunday, I was watching uh, the Washington football team play uh, the Eagles and uh, the, the uh, Washington football team has gone through weeks, maybe a couple of months of just dreadful stories about, uh, about sort of the uh, back office uh, and, uh, executives behaving badly. Uh, and I was curious, it was, uh, you know, Kevin Burkhart and uh, Daryl Johnson. And I was wondering if it was going to come up on the telecast, and it didn't. I mean, what came up is sort of a, a mismanagement of, for the team in terms of, you know, draft picks and n- number of uh, starting quarterbacks and head coaches. And, and but But, you know, some of the salacious details that, that were documented in these Washington Post stories you know, didn't come up. And I think that it's not just Fox. I think you have all of these networks. They, they're they there to document the games. They're there to sort of talk about what's going on uh, on the field. I think that ESPN covers or will cover uh, those aspects of the Big Ten that you talked about uh, fully on ESPN.com, on ESPN Plus, on, on, on SportsCenter even. 
But I think once once the game starts, uh, and uh, I, I even think they can bring it up during the pregame. But once the game starts, executives there, uh, executives at all the networks, really just kind of want to focus on the game. People want people want to watch the game. People want to sort of get away from uh, um, you know reality uh, for a little bit. Uh, that's that's the viewpoint of a lot of of these executives. I don't see that changing too much. You think that's honest, John? I'm asking you individually. I'm not asking you. I agree with you. Everything you just said, I think, it checks out. Exactly what I've heard uh, for you know a decade now. But is that honest? Is that honest to viewers? Um, I don't know. I I, I don't know how I fall on that, Richard. I I I, I could make the case that. Um, that that it's a television program that that's showing that, that that's not a news news program. It's it's they're they're, they're documenting a game on 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 the field, uh, and then for for that those three hours, I can see where it's like no we're, we're, we we don't need to bring in these these added uh added elements. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that you know if you're documenting the game on the on the field. There are storylines that you can go through, and that is a certain storyline about the entire game that certainly can be brought up. I think that there are, you saw Fox and you saw some of the uh, NFL um, broadcasters bring up a lot of the social justice uh, issues within the, within the context of, of a storyline on the field. I think that you could do that also with, uh, with, with COVID and with coming back to play. So I, I do think that there is a spot for it, uh, but I, I certainly, uh, if, if I were running one of the networks, I, I certainly wouldn't go overboard on it. I appreciate you answering that. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Um, all right. A couple more here for you. I, I saw the news that ESPN and Fox Bet had signed a multi-year sponsorship deal uh, where there's going to be a, like a big studio and a lounge at Lincoln Financial Field open to fans before kickoff. And then ESPN has a deal with Caesars Entertainment, um, William Hill, and DraftKings, which I think basically could theoretically, I guess, offer a blueprint as to how sports media companies might want to be involved in sports betting. So there's a couple questions I have for you here, just because I know you've reported a little bit on this. Undoubtedly, there's money to be had for uh, sports legacy media companies to get involved in sports gambling. Like that, They've already gotten some money that exists. Um, That's real, and that's going to happen. The question is, John, what, what ultimately is this market? And is this like a true game-changing billion-dollar uh, market where you know, you know, ESPN is going to, you know, they're all their programming or all Fox's programming. Essentially, we're going to see lines, and you're going to be able to bet on ESPN.com, uh, and you're going to have 20,000, 20, you know, sports gambling type shows. Or will this ultimately, you think, in your opinion, sort of fall into more of a of a niche play? I think at one point, John, maybe last year, I, I was. I'm not saying I'm down on it, but I feel like I was much higher thinking that this was going to be game-changing than I am today. I don't know if the pandemic has influenced my thinking, but you know, I do see some of the viewership numbers, John, for these uh, sports gambling shows, and 
they don't really rate at this point. What What do you think? Yeah, I've long been a skeptic about sports gambling. I, I think that there's a nice uh, a revenue line there that networks are, are desperate to get, especially like with, with cord cutting coming and, and, and people are, are trying to find revenue uh, out there. Uh, but I don't think I don't see this as, as being game changing at all. And in fact, I think some of these uh, some of these ideas of you know putting a, a sports book in a, a fancy restaurant and I'm going to go with my family before a game and like you know and, and make a wager. We're we're still talking about a vice here, uh, and and the, the idea of, uh, of a family friendly uh, place to bet is, is would be unique. <laughs> Did, didn't Vegas try to do that uh, 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 several years ago, where they tried to uh, market to you know oh, bring your families here, and that, that didn't work. It's not it's not a family friendly environment. It's a, it's a place for sports fans to go and 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 make make some wagers. Uh, so I, I see it as being it's opening up. It's never been opened up before. It's a new revenue stream. But the idea that that uh, I mean, you're going to see a lot of people. Um, get get out of this uh, eventually because there, there's it's like a gold rush now. Everybody's running into it, and it's it, the market isn't that big. You're going to have a couple of couple of brands that win, a couple of brands that that, that lose. But uh, um, uh, it's 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 something that's basically I think it's something that's going to be around, but it's never going to be that big. Do you want to know my my thought on this and sort of as to how what like who maybe the the people who ultimately win if that's the right word at this? I think this becomes far more. Of a of an economic gold rush for a place like a, a bar stool, or a like a digitally centric or or a place that totally agree. you know what I mean a place that grew digitally that focuses um, far more on sort of men between the ages of eighteen and thirty five eighteen and forty with a ton of discretionary income who have proven that they love nothing more than to gamble where you can get those kind of personalities to maybe host like uh, live digital programming or you. You know, you make the deal with some casino where you, you know, you brand it, Barstool branded. I mean, this is already exists anyway. I'm not saying anything doesn't. But like, I, like to me, I feel like that seems like more of the logical long-term fit than, um, again, like 6 p.m. ESPN Sports Center, 7 p.m. ESPN gambling. Like, I do think you're going to have more gambling elements on all the studio shows. And I think eventually a little bit more on the game broadcast, too. But I, I'm with you. I just, I mean, again, and if I'm proven wrong, I'll certainly say, hey, I totally missed a boat here. I, I don't think for quote unquote legacy media, it's going to be as big a gold rush as it might be for some of the new digital players. No, and they're just they're, they're opening things up uh, too. But I also wonder, you know, it, 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 there was something so like sort of like insidery to hear Brent Musburger talk about our friends in the desert, or you know, to, to hear. Uh, Al Michaels uh, talk about an inconsequential field goal in the fourth quarter. And I'm like, oh, that's an interesting one because it's a, there's an over under, you know, that, 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 that's there. Um, if they're able to on a broadcast say like, well, he hit the over, I mean, is, does it lose something? I think it kind of does. There was a, a sort of a, I'm in on the joke. There's a knowing nod there. Uh, I, I guess I think that we're going to see the major networks, go whole hog. And I think we saw it on the NFL Sunday. I don't know if you watch a Fox pregame show, but you know, they're talking about like who's going to win, but by a point spread, you know, which, which I hadn't, I hadn't quite seen before, you know? And, and so that's getting into it a lot as opposed to, uh, you know, just who wins just generally. Uh, I think you're going to see more of that happen, but eventually I think it, it, it's going to come back to the, to the norm. 
John, what is your quick take on the Peacock streaming service? Um, uh, quick take on the I, I, it's um, I don't know. It's I, I mean it's it's a, it's a, it's what all the different networks are doing. Um, I've ummed and odd enough that this is hardly a quick take, Richard. So I'm, I, I apologize. Well, go for but a long take. I mean, do you think? Like, do you like? You know, you've seen what the programming is. They're obviously. Um, you know, they've thrown, uh, for one, for instance, pr- a lot of pretty good Premier League content um, that you have to um, that you have to have Peacock in order to see. I think, if I'm correct, John, there are parts of the U.S. Open uh, golf tournament that you need Peacock to see. So very clearly, NBC's doing what um, they're following the ESPN plus playbook and some other places where it's basically like, you know, we've invested all this money in this. And if you want to see some premium sports programming, you're going to have to once again, pay for another streaming service. Yeah. And my Twitter feed uh, on Thursday was filled with people that were ranting about the fact that they had to go to Peacock to see an hour of the U S open for free. But I can tell you the executives at NBC and all of the networks, like there's, there's no birth rate that's, that mandates that you have to see every single shot of the U.S. Open Correct. on broadcast television. Right, yeah. I mean, th- th- I just go back to uh, to the late '80s, early '90s when the NFL started going on to uh, to, to cable. The NBA was on cable, and pe- pe- people like my father were so irritated. Like, you know, why can't I see that? Why do I have to pay pay to watch television? That's crazy. And this is sort of taking that playbook. And, and turning it on its head. And so as, as people cut the cord and people want a la carte, this is what a la carte is. If you want to see it, you're going to have to pay for it. That's a, that, that's the, the, the whole point behind it. It's amazing, John. We're not so far removed from the days where you can only see one NCAA tournament game in one window. And, you know, if you get lucky, CBS's programming would show you the last minute, uh, last seconds of a game where you can see that March Madness moment. Uh, but, you know, again, I, I while I don't while I'm with you, I don't think it's a birthright I do think that some of these places, um, you know, ha- are have been incredibly greedy, and in that you've sort of you educated your audience for a long, long time that they'd have all this availability, and now that streaming exists and, and cord cutting exists, and you need to find new revenue streams, you're taking stuff away from them. So I do, I do get it. What's crazy, John, about the cable business and like the streaming business, it costs far more money now, correct, to have all the streaming services that you need than back in the day when your entire cable bundle would have probably had all these sports for you totally the cable bundle was a great deal and everybody like it ended up you ended up paying more for it but now if you're a fan of baseball basketball and football you know for all the different streaming services you have to get on top of uh on top of some cable networks you're paying it you're paying a whole lot more it seems yeah yeah the only thing i want you to pay for please is the athletic incredibly good product yeah fairly, fairly cheap thank you I can say, Richard, before I came on, I was highlighting that I had at least three tabs open with uh, athletic stories, none of which were yours, so I got to start clicking on that. I apologize. Yeah, it's but, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, I'm... Shout out to Ben Standing and Michael Lee for their Wizards uh, takedown. That was uh, you know, ruined my morning this morning. Both quality reporters, Mr. Michael Lee and Ben Standing. All right, let's finish up with this, John, and that is our favorite topic, and that's the PR departments. Of, uh, oh, PR, yeah. of the various networks. Um, right now, John, if I had to rank all my PR people, um, Anna Negron is number one, <laughs> far and away. Worked with her on a couple of different things. Wait, who's number Incredibly- one? Anna Negron of ESPN. Worked with her on a couple of different things. Uh, could not have been more helpful um, doing the number one thing of someone in sports PR, which is not 
you know, sort of uh, not overmanaging uh, when you're working with a journalist, sort of, you know, staying, relatively speaking, out of the way, but also wanting to sort of get a sense of, of where things are. Um, and so right now, her professionalism puts her at, uh, at number one. Of course, those rankings always change, John, as you know. You know, today's, <laughs> today's favorite um, PR person is tomorrow's Josh Karulowitz, who, so, um, you know, so these rankings can change. And, uh, and sort of, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, but this leads me into my, um, my segue. Have you, have you documented by the way on, on the pod, the, uh, momentous change at ESPN PR? No, because that is so inside baseball, John, but yes, they have a, they have a whole new lead. They have a whole new college football, uh, sort of crew because Kerry Potts and long time and, uh, incredibly valuable person to ESPN has moved on to, um, you know, I, w- I would say sort of more important uh, in work in a different field. So, yeah, they have the whole new college football group. They have a new NFL uh, leadership in the PR department with uh, Derek Volner, right, and um, um, Ali Stoneberg. And so massive changes at ESPN, right? And then our guy, I wrote about this in, in Sports Business Daily. It was the most read story for the week. Bill Hoffheimer has been – he's done uh, PR for Monday Night Football – since ESPN got Monday Night Football back in 2006, right. he's no longer doing PR for Monday Night Football. He is now heading up the college football PR. Which is good. time for no college football. Listen, John, I have to be honest with you. I, I know, listen, Hoffheimer seems like an incredibly nice guy, and he's always professional when I deal with him. <laughs> but, but, I mean, is there any person, honestly, in sports public relations who praises more people online than Bill Hoffheimer? Like, every person is just incredibly exceptional. Like I've a couple times I've tried to get Bill on this. He won't, he won't budge. I, I respect his discipline. Like, like I'll say, Bill, can you give me someone who you just think is mediocre or just an at what, what is an average product at ESPN? But he will not do it. He will not break. I tell him, I, I say, Bill, the sun is always shining in Bristol, Connecticut. It's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Joseph Stalin. What, I mean, what an incredible worker at ESPN. He's just, he's done some amazing work in, in Russia. I mean, Again, I guess though I will say you know if you, you know if you're someone if you're a Chris Laplaca and you need you know you need people in your department who just are the sun is always shining you know that's uh, I was watching a, a UVA game with a Hoffheimer once and I heard him um, mutter a curse word under his breath I can no reliably report so. cannot believe yep that. yep wow. I'm not going to say what the word was I'm not going to say who UVA was playing but I did I did hear that I I, I am a witness to that. So, all right, so finally, John, here's the, here's the real thing. Here's what I do want to ask you about. What's been fascinating, John, is that um, networks now will put out releases, John, uh, particularly on viewership and obviously particularly on NFL viewership, and now those releases, John, are politicized on all sides. Can you believe that in 2020 the sports media public relations NFL viewership release has become something that, that's weaponized, that's political? Yeah, you you could see this coming, right? I mean, this, this has been coming for for for, for a little bit. Uh, what what I find to be interesting about this, and I haven't actually run the numbers, but I, I think I'm right on this. Is uh, four years ago was when uh, the, the ratings for the NFL took took a deep hit, and, um, and, and three to four years ago, and a lot of that was due to the election and the first year of the Trump administration. And, um, and I think that we're right back in an election year 
with all of the with all of the uh, uh, the, the sports that are going on, uh, even with uh, some of the protests. I, I have friends that are not watching the NFL and, and, and protesting protesting the NFL. I think that all of this added together, you know, you're going to see some uh, you're going to see ratings drops, and it's 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 impossible given the tweets from the president and given uh, sort of the, the defense of it from uh, fr- from others that, that it's going to get political. Yeah, I will say this, John. I have no doubt that there are uh, some people who have decided now to watch the NFL this year based on, um, yeah, based on how they view things. I do not think it is statistically uh, large at all. And I think as very, very smart people have sort of told you over and over again, there are um, – there are reasons as to why uh, viewership has dropped. NASCAR, John, is has tanked this year. Uh, am I to believe that Na- NASCAR has tanked because NASCAR leadership has been lecturing the American public? Of course not. It's an idiotic take. The take is that they've gone against massive comp. So, again, I, I, this is my opinion. Yeah, to me, to, other to other me, people may disagree, me, but I, I, I think that is that remains— Far more overstated than not, but I'm willing to admit if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Uh, to me, the idiotic take is, is when anybody says that there's one reason why the ratings exactly. are down. Fair enough. There's always more than one reason, 100%. and I, I, I feel that the, uh, the the protest is certainly a potential reason that that's out there. Yeah, I mean, again, and I think if you have a reasonable conversation, again, I, I I've said you know when it comes to the NBA, the NBA handled China. It was a shit show, their initial response to China, and people should look at their relationship with China for sure. Absolutely. That said, for you, for anyone to extrapolate that the reason like somehow that a viewership of a singular game is down because of the NBA's relationship to China, I'm with you. It's just it's, – it's an absurd take. But yes, I think there are multiple factors for everything on both – uh, on both ends, and I think you have to concede that yes, there are certainly some people who have decided to walk away um, from the NFL because of this. I just do not think it is statistically relevant. We can, you know, we can certainly agree to disagree on that. All right, John, I took I kept you for much longer than I expected, forty minutes or so. Is there anything else you want to uh, anything else you want to hit on before we, before I let you go here? No, not just looking forward to a a weekend of sports TV, man. It's going to be fun. All right, I know you'll be. Uh, I sounded like Hoffheimer on that. That was good. I know, John. I mean, to be honest with you, for this appearance is very feels very PR-ish for you. If you, you're, <laughs> you sort of were taking the. I feel like you were taking the tact of Fox PR and CBS PR and ESPN PR more than anything else this week. Is that a fair assessment, or am I, I think am I being too harsh? Verities in my ear. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you got a good second career in the event that. Uh, Jen Sabatel <laughs> needs some people to fill in. Way too many name drops here on this podcast. I'm going to get some bad reviews on on, uh, on Stitcher and Amazon and on uh, iTunes. All right, John, thank you as always, and uh, you will be back um, very soon. John Oran, please read his work in the Sports Business Daily and Journal and follow him on Twitter for sure. Thank you, John. Thanks, RD. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, as I said at the top, 
Um, there have been times on this podcast where we have uh, left the sports media to talk to um, interesting people. Uh, you know, whether that's someone like uh, Daniel Dale or Evan Osnos, and this week we'll be doing the same. Sayward Darby is the author of Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism. She's also the editor-in-chief of The Atavist, which I highly recommend uh, people checking out. Previously, she was an editor at Foreign Policy and The New Republic. I mean, in short, basically, she's quite frankly, too smart to be on this idiotic podcast, but she, uh, she's been kind enough to join me. Her husband, Corey Sobel, is the author of The Red Shirt, uh, which is a novel about college football. That's been selected for the 2020 um, long list of the Center for Fiction's first novel prize. Corey attended Duke University on a football scholarship. I actually Googled him last night. His stats... Uh, not only is his, he has his, like uh, his Duke stuff is up there, but his literally as a high school recruit, Corey, you're still there. I saw like a rival site that lists you as a three star recruit heading to Duke. Um, beyond college football uh, and beyond his work as an author, uh, he's researched uh, HIV and AIDS in North Carolina and Kenya. Uh, is written about human rights abuses on the border of Burma and Thailand. Um, so these are two um, serious people and serious journalists. Though they say they can banter, so I appreciate that. Um, Corey and uh, Sayward, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you for coming on. It's hey. wonderful to be here. Yeah, we're going to have to get used to answering at the same time. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is our first joint interview. No, thank you so much for, for having us. And Richard, I was thinking about, I feel like you and I have been communicating on Twitter since like, I don't know, what, 2010 or something? A long time. Yeah, so this is fun to to talk well IRL I guess sort of kind of <laughs> a long time ago right all right so we're done with that let's talk about NFL viewership no I'm kidding <laughs> all right, so first so all right here's I want to ask you guys both this I want to start with this um we'll, we'll get into your uh specifically to your books in a second uh particularly say I think your book is like incredibly important given what's going on in the country right now but I'll start with you say like th- this is like for a for authors I- I'm not sure that this is good. This is an unprecedented time. I'm not sure authors have ever had to face the current climate that exists. So you, one, you're selling into what's a pandemic that affects press tours. You can't pretty much go to a bookstore as you normally would to talk about your book, to meet the public. Um, you're limited, I would think, in terms of um, the technology of doing press, maybe by doing stuff that's like um, – uh, Skype or uh, some other, you know, FaceTime as opposed to going to a studio unless you happen to live into that city. And then sales-wise, and again, this I'm not an author, but this is just me anecdotally sort of thinking out loud, um, the, the, the sales in bookstores have to be significantly down. So you're really dealing with an online audience. So for all of those things, from marketing to sales to public relations, what has it been like to um, to sell a very well-received book in in August, September 2020? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a it's a great question. Um, and this is something Corey and I both thought and talked a lot about, uh, you know, when we kind of found out when our books were, were going to be published um, as the world was, you know, on fire in, in literal and figurative ways. Um, I mean, I think that certainly, uh, you know, I haven't done anything in person um, and everything has been, as you say, on Skype and Zoom thus far, uh, which is, you know, totally fine. I mean, certainly I can do it from the comfort of my own 
home, but there are technological snafus. Um, several times I thought something was going to be audio only, only to discover it was video and I was in no way <laughs> prepared, um, you know, like in sweaty workout clothes or something like that. So, um, so it's definitely been a little like fly by the seat of your pants for lack of a better way of putting it. And then I think too, from a reception standpoint, um, you know, I was told, this is my first book, and I was told as we headed into publication, you know, the first two weeks are really the most like important time. Um, that's when you're going to get your reviews, when, you know, people, the most attention is going to be paid to it. And I think that 2020 is showing that that's not true. Like things can kind of come in drips and drabs. Um, you know, my review in the New York Times took a month to come out. Um, and in some ways that's nice because the attention goes on, um, you know, for longer, uh, which which is, which is great. And you get, you know, maybe a new audience each time. Um, at the same time, you know, honestly, the hardest thing is just breaking through the news. Uh, you know, this is something we think about a lot at the Atavist where we publish, you know, stories that aren't tied to, uh, you know, the latest screw up by the White House. Um, and, and, uh, and so, you know, trying to compete with headlines that are just dizzyingly constant and alarming um, is certainly, <laughs> is certainly a task. Um, that being said, you know, Corey and I both benefit from, we have what are timely books, you know, one's nonfiction, one's fiction, but, uh, you know, we're both writing on topics that are very of the moment and in the conversation. And so I think that that has helped us in comparison to, you know, somebody who might be writing on something that has nothing to do with the, with the current social political climate. Corey, what about you? I mean, you're, um, you know, on top of everything I just uh, uh, discussed with a say word, you're you're also trying to sell a, a a book of fiction, which in itself is, I think, always a little bit tougher. And I think, if I'm correct, you're a first time author, right? When it comes to fiction, which is you know infinitely tougher because you're not John Grisham, where you can call on you know 35 best selling right uh, books that you have. So what what how have you found um, how have you found the sort of the whole process of trying to get your uh, book to be heard and seen and, and, uh, and become part of, uh, the popular culture conversation. I'm, I'm in a sort of perverse situation insofar as the pandemic has created such upheaval in the football world, um, and has, uh, along with the Black Lives Matter, uh, movement and other sort of developments in the news, it's foregrounded, um, a lot of the issues that drive my book. And so in, in a surprising way, it sort of makes it much more intuitive um, for us to uh, approach publications or for you know people who are sort of looking for something to, to help them understand the moment um, to see that you know I, you've got a book uh, that's very much about sort of the sociological and racial and you know sexuality related related issues of college football um coming out in a moment where all of those issues are in the news to an extent that i i'm not sure i've ever seen them um and so in that respect i think uh people might actually take my book a little bit more seriously than they might otherwise be inclined to um and i'm talking about non-sports folk i'm talking about you know the people in the literary community who uh are at pains to dismiss uh, sports and then football specifically. Um, and so um, that's been a, a, a sort of funny thing to see. Whereas, you know, people like the three of us understand that football is 
deeply embedded in this country in all sorts of ways. Um, but, and to see the wider literary culture sort of to perk up their ears and say, oh, well, maybe there's actually something there that's more substantive, mm -hmm. um, has definitely sort of been to the good. So what I think this is, tell me if I'm wrong. I think I, this is part of your New York times, uh, review. It's hard, uh, it's hard to wrap our heads around the idea that women traditionally expected to be gentle and nurturing could be driving engines of white supremacist hatred. The journalists say where Darby shows that this is one of the more sexist assumptions we ought to discard. I think that's from your New York Times review, which was obviously very, very positive. What is the um, what is the genesis of you exploring um, white supremacy and hatred specifically uh, among these three women that you profile? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, Corey and I, we've joked that uh, my book is about like toxic femininity and his book in some ways is about toxic masculinity. And so we're just, you know, have been toiling away on either side of the apartment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I but I think that that's to, to answer your your question immediately after the 2016 election, there was a lot of talk about the alt-right and how they were angry white men. Um, and there just seemed to be a pretty reductive understanding in, in, in my you know, that was my impression um, of what that space and what that movement uh, is. And so it really started from the point of, I haven't seen women quoted, I haven't seen women profiled, but surely there must be women involved in this movement. We had just seen exit polls showing, you know, a, a, a small majority and ultimately the, the final polls would show a plurality of white women voting for Trump. And so something was off um, in the fact that these women were not being covered by the media. So. Uh, so that was the genesis. Um, I think, too, there was some uh, inquiry can tell you that I was bereft after after the election. So uh, I think I was also looking for some way to wrap my head around things and to find a way as a journalist to kind of contribute to the moment. Um, and this felt like it was in my lane um, as a white woman, um, as a as a white American. So. Uh, so yeah, that was the genesis late 2016, just went looking for women who support white nationalism and um, now I'm the person who people call when they want to talk about white nationalist women. So, um, so yeah, that was the, that was kind of the, the process. Yeah. And I will eventually, one of the things I want to ask you about is sort of, uh, um, what it might do to the psyche when you become the sort of the expert on hatred. <laughs> um, Corey, you, um, you play college football. So you obviously have sort of a background of this and obviously football was a very, very big part of your, uh, formative years and and teenage years. What um, what inspired you to write a to write a fictional novel? What inspired you to write this particular story? I think it came from the same place any you know novel comes from. Is it's some deep sense of uh, irresolution, and uh, it, you know fiction for me is the best way to think through something that's confounding me. Um, and so, yeah, football was my entire life. Uh, I come from a gigantic family generally, and also a gigantic family of gigantic football fans. And so um, I was raised in football and I've said, you know, that it's sort of the, the main sort of aspect of my family's identity in a lot of ways. And so, you know, that carried me and uh, was a source of, of um, acceptance and mobility in any number of ways uh, through my adolescence. And, you know, as happens with adolescence, I uh, uh, grew out of the game. 
um, and started to read a lot and started to become obsessed by literature and trying to write myself. And uh, the novel sort of focuses on, you know, that that time in boys' lives where the the game that has gotten them into college that makes them, in a lot of cases, the first person from their family to go to college um, also is changing in meaning for them um, and is not necessarily uh, the same thing that they had experienced when they were eight. You know, I started playing football when I was eight. Um, and so, you know, it was a way to dramatize and think through um, what happens to boys who are conditioned um, to be in a, a certain world um, and then find themselves uh, increasingly sort of ill-suited to remain in that world. I think, so just to chime in, I also remember uh, when Corey started writing this book in 2015, 2015. Yeah, um, yeah, we had just gotten married. And I remember him saying at one point that this was just a book he felt like he had to write. Like it was like something that just was inside that needed to come out. And I think that's to the point of irresolution. Um, yeah. And that's usually that I always feel like that's for any writer um, that sort of tells you that you are onto something great in that, like you, you have to write it regardless of ultimately what, uh, you know, what comes of it, what comes of it in terms of, you know, sales or interest, et cetera. That's usually right. a story that you are forced that, that internally you have to tell. Yes. Oftentimes yeah. is usually the best story yeah. uh, that you can produce. Yeah, trying um, to expel it in a way. Exactly. You know? Right. Yeah. So. Unless it becomes an obsession and then yeah, exactly. that's, that's its own ball of wax. Right. Um, so one of the things that I, I, you probably been asked this, but I, I have an expert on, um, on this. So I, I must ask, um, in your opinion, like in the United States, do you feel that hate towards others has increased or is it that our awareness to the hate via social media, via amplification, via whatever mm -hmm. has increased? So has this always existed and we just now have more avenues to see it or um, or is it the fact that it's it's, you know, it's the the awareness of it? heightens everything and it makes it feel like it's perhaps bigger than it is? Um, I actually think it's both. Um, I think that it's been there all along and we have lived in this kind of mythological post-racial um, idea of the country, which is something that's been, you know, constructed by by politicians now for, for decades. Um, and so I definitely think it has been there, but I also think that the exposure of it, uh, you know, certainly by Trump's presidency, um, but even, you know, other other forces in in the current world, um, I think that that has also then increased, you know, the the amount of hate that we see, the the number of people who are, you know, interested in this space, being involved in this space. Um, and I think that, you know, the internet plays such a huge role in this because it's both allowing us to see, you know, where these, uh, you know, pockets and sometimes, frankly, blankets of hate have existed. Uh, but then it's also, uh, you know, it, it's this hyper democratic avenue for inviting people in um, and convincing people that, you know, white nationalism is in their interest. So, uh, I mean, I, I feel like I always sound like a bit of a Debbie Downer on this, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard to be optimistic <laughs> uh, when you spend a lot of time um, in these in these corners of the Internet. Um, but I, I definitely, I think that it would be, yeah, it, it's, it's not an either 
or it's definitely a both uh, to what you're describing. Corey, um, you, um, you, you just saw in the last week a significant decision by Big Ten presidents to reverse their initial decision and decide to play again. Oh, yeah. There, there's talk about the Pac-12 perhaps trying to uh, come back and play college football this year. Uh, the SEC is already playing. The Big 12 is already playing. Um, there's some smaller conferences that opted out. Um, I realize that you're, you know, whatever, 10, 12, 13 years older than um, your average college football player, uh, but you did play. I mean, you know, you're somebody who, uh, you're in that 99 percentile of someone who actually was on the field in a major, at a major university that plays major college football. What's your reaction to seeing college football being played this year uh, amid, amid COVID-19? I'm not surprised. Um, I, I think what's really interesting about the pandemic, and I mentioned this earlier, but it's foregrounding, you know, uh, the game in a way that uh, is making people pay attention to it um, in a way they hadn't before. But to be honest, I mean, the same, you know, my book's set in uh, early aughts, you know, roughly, let's say like 2003, 2004. And if you trade out, you know, a couple of technological details, like it applies, I think, almost exactly to today. And I think that speaks to how um, consistent uh, college football has remained as a culture. Um, and business. yeah, as a business, and it's it's basic operating principles have always been um, the utilization and exploitation of unpaid labor. Um, and so, you, you know, these kids are still unpaid. So why wouldn't they be ordered into a, an unsafe environment? That is the, the basic fact of football is to have these kids go out and, you know, risk their physical health in one way or another. Um, and so I, if anything, I was surprised that, um, those conferences, you know, allowed themselves to momentarily be persuaded to the side of reason. Um, but when you take the political pressure and again, just sort of the basic way that these colleges view um, the kids on the teams, like, of course, it was going to be this way. Um, I, I'm really, really worried about the long term effects that COVID's going to have on, you know, these kids' hearts. Um, on their psyches, you know, for, for them to be told in, in so many words that this is how little they mean to these universities. Um, and so I, I, I'm just deeply, deeply unsurprised by how things are proceeding um, and, uh, you know, dismayed. All right, let's finish up on this. Um, Sayward, you um, having... Um having read some interviews with journalists who um who write on a sort of a, a weekly or daily basis about um uh, white nationalism or if you sort of extend it globally like uh the increasing amount of nazism in 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 foreign countries um or just sort of in in a larger sense sort of uh hatred or organized hatred it it has it, it absolutely has an impact on um, the emotional space of these reporters. And I find them sort of incredible and in that they sort of continue to go on and 
do this important work because psychologically it has to take a toll. Now I realize, um, you know, you did this book, um, you're able to, I guess, at least get away from the reporting of the book, but did you find like during the court, like did, did, did the reporting of this have some kind of, um, any, take any kind of emotional toll on you? And then secondly, um, where does your optimism or pessimism lie in terms of ultimately trying to get to, uh, uh, you know, a better, a better light for America? Yeah, no, great question. I mean, I don't know, Corey, has it taken an emotional toll on me? <laughs> She's, uh, her, her consumption of animal videos <laughs> and photographs no. on social media has skyrocketed. Right. It's not a bad thing. I need, yeah, I need, I need that antidote. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it definitely has taken its its own toll. Um, I mean, you know, I, I so I work at the Atomist, obviously, that's my full time job, I couldn't take time off, I took like three weeks at one point. But otherwise, I was writing this book while working a full time job, which on the one hand, I do not recommend because that's exhausting. But on the other hand, I will say like having something else that was just as important to me creatively was a huge counterbalance and working at the Atavist with writers who come to us with stories that are passion projects um, and, you know, being able to collaborate with them on that, that was a way that I was really able to kind of keep my head on right, if you will. Um, and so, you know, again, it's kind of a double-edged sword because it was exhausting, but at the same time, uh, you know, it was, it was just hugely uh, helpful. Um, and then, you know, I think in, in terms of, the ways in which this took its its toll. Um, I mean, certainly, I feel, I don't know, like, desensitized in some ways, um, you know, things that come out in the mainstream news that seem, you know, particularly horrifying, uh, uh, rhetorically or otherwise, I feel like, well, I read that three years ago on, you know, 4chan or Gab or Twitter or whatever. Um, and so there's some piece of me that just is no longer horrified by things. Um, I also think that, you know, working in this space and realizing that the people who inhabit it are actually not that different from you. You know, like the three women that I profiled in the book, I mean, there are many women who are in the book, but there are three main ones who I focus on. Um, you know, one of them is, uh, you know, she has a graduate degree. Um, uh, they're, they're professionals. They didn't get into this because they were, you know, as the stereotype, uh, that gets played out in the media would say, you know, they didn't get into it because of uh, a man or anything like that. You know, they, they came to it independently. Um, and I think that the, the emotional toll in some ways was realizing or seeing that familiarity um, and not being able to other people who you so vehemently disagree with. Um, at the same time, I think that that's the, I hope, the strength of the book um, because I want people to, to see these people as more, more familiar than they might otherwise, um, or might tell themselves, um, they are. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, animal videos have helped for sure. Um, <laughs> the Atomist has helped for sure. We also have pets, um, and they've been very helpful. Very cute dog, very cute cat. Corey's been helpful, <laughs> um, always. And then in terms of optimism, pessimism, I think that I, I am a person who tends toward pessimism, um, just as a, as a worldview, but I do think that, you know, I've certainly watching Black Lives Matter this summer um, and seeing, you know, polls shift um, and showing the number of people who are, uh, you know, 
seeing um, the the need for a reckoning with with our racial history, like that's that's hugely encouraging. Um, I'm worried about backlash against that, some of which we've already seen, and I think there there could be more to come. But something I write at the end of the book, and that has helped me kind of, uh, I don't know, keep keep optimism and focus is that like history is made up of small moves, you know, things nudge forward, they step back, um, they, they go forward five steps, they go back six, but then maybe they jump forward 10, like, just realizing that, you know, it's not linear, necessarily, it can be a stop start. Um, and that, you know, things don't ha always happen in a grand sweep sweeping way. Um, they might be uh, there, there might be good things happening that we don't even see on an interpersonal level. So, um, so that's kind of how I try to keep my, my optimism, I don't know, <laughs> in front of me. <laughs> no, that's, that's, I appreciate that answer. Uh, so let's end on this, Corey, you can start and then say what you can finish. What's, uh, what's next for you guys, Corey? Do you, are you, is it your intention to continue to write fiction or do you want to head somewhere else for whatever your next, uh, editorial project will be? Uh, no, I'm irredeemably a fiction writer. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I am, uh, just about to finish a new novel. Uh, oh, congrats. Oh, thanks. Awesome. Um, okay. He's also, he's playing it down. He's written like two or three novels in the last like two years. Corey, Corey writes more than any, it's, it's crazy. Like I agonize over every sentence and Corey just like pours out words. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. That's, those are honestly quite frankly very annoying human beings. <laughs> exactly <laughs> I mean, this is what i'm saying <laughs> congratulations though cory thank I mean, you very much a, <laughs> uh and what about you say where do you obviously have to be doing stuff with the atavist are you you gonna tackle another book or are you gonna sort of just focus on that for the moment um yeah i mean i'm definitely focused on the atavist right now um you know this uh, was my first book it took several years. Um, I'm a person who, I'm not a beat reporter, right? Like I'm, I'm a person who finds a topic and has to kind of sit with it for a while. So I'm hoping that such a topic will, will come along. Um, I'm kicking around some ideas. Um, but right now, I mean, frankly, the, the topic of the book continues to be extremely timely. And so I'm also kind of trying to, uh, you know, contribute to the, to the conversation um, in the lead up to the election. All right, let's let's uh, let's promote these guys again. Say we're Darby's the author of Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism. Corey Sobel is the author of The Red Shirt, which has uh, been selected on the uh, long list of the Center for Fiction's first novel prize. They are a married couple um, and uh, both promoting books in this uh, in this unprecedented uh, time, which, uh, you know. We'll make for a nice story for them 30 years from now. <laughs> grandchildren, knock on wood. Assuming, assuming the planet hasn't, I know, right? hasn't, bl oh, hasn't blown up. Assuming we don't want to live on Mars. <laughs> well, you can always come to Canada. You know, you can, you, I, have a, I have an upstairs room if you're willing to take care of my kids for a couple of hours. You guys, you, you guys are invited. Thank you. Um, I, wish, uh, I wish you guys nothing but the best of success for um, your book. Say where it seems from like, at least all the reviews I've read. Uh, I mean, uh, it's been, you know, people dream of the kind of reviews that you've gotten. So congratulations to that. That's, uh, um, you know, it is a subjective business, but it when is. the reviews, when the reviews tend to go one way, usually, you know, that, um, you've got a book that's, uh, that's impacted people. So thank you for joining me. Uh, thank you for, thank you academics for slumming to this sports. Not media at podcast. all. Not at all. <laughs> I appreciate that. Very kind of you too. Um, and I wish you nothing but the best of success and, uh, stay safe down there, uh, in New York. Say we're Darby and, uh, Corey 
uh, Sobel, go uh, head to Amazon and uh, buy those books. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much. guys. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, John Orant, uh, Sayward Darby, and uh, Corey Sobel for um, their time. Usually you will not be hearing uh, authors such as uh, Sayward and Corey on this podcast, but uh, I've known Sayward for a while, and I, I just find uh, her work really exceptional and uh, and I thought the topic of the book that she did is, is pretty important so I wanted to have those guys on after you know our traditional sports media um, conversations if you like this stuff uh, please head to the archives uh, a lot of this content remains uh, pretty evergreen Jim Trotter and Steve Weish of NFL Media were on last week to sort of preview the NFL season uh, as well as to talk about their new podcast Kavitha Davidson and uh, Jessica Luther my colleague Kavitha Davidson was on uh, as well, and they talked about um, their new book, so check that out. Before that, Renee Paquette, who uh, better known as Renee Young, uh, a well-known figure in the WWE, and uh, she left the WWE after eight years of broadcasting, was just incredibly honest on this podcast about her time there. I can't thank Renee enough for that. And then prior to that, we did a long, long podcast on the NBA's viewership issues with Anthony Krupe and Austin Karp, two of the most foremost sports viewership experts in uh, this country so if you're in NBA ratings you'll enjoy that and then just head down the list of uh, people who've been on this podcast whether it's James Andrew Miller or Holly Rowe or Molly uh, Molly or uh, Marley uh, Rivera Michael E.J. Adonde Tom Verducci Booger McFarland, Bob Costas and the list goes on um, if you like this kind of stuff again five star review leave us a uh, uh, a nice note uh, that's how the podcast uh, continues so uh, so thank you for that. Appreciate it. My uh, thanks to uh, Patrick and Sean for producing this podcast. Thanks to everybody Cadence 13 from uh, John McDermott to Spencer Brown to Chris Corcoran. We'll pause there because my brain wasn't working fast enough. So thanks to everybody at Cadence 13, and we'll see you again soon on the Sports Media Podcast.